The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SB studio, so many lovely, irrepressible people. Just for instance, take the boisterous MD-PhD student, Riley B. and Bush. Incredibly boisterous. <laughs> or what about the unstoppable MD-PhD student, Levi Doyle? Hey there, everybody. <laughs> and then there's the ebullient M1, Jeff Goddard. Definitely not an MD-PhD student. Feeling you a little left be. out here. And another okay. example is the uh, exuberant M3 co-host, Katie Sharp, joining us in the form of ones and zeros from the internet. Hey. Where, where are you, Katie? What what blank room are you in? I'm in my room in Des Moines because oh. I'm part of the Des Moines cohort. Oh, nice. Nice of you to join mm-hmm. us from Des Moines. Des Moines. Yeah. Yeah. I'm from Iowa. I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> Katie, are you, in fact, what did I call you, exuberant? Are you, in fact, exuberant? I try. Yeah? I don't know if I always succeed, but that's okay. Well, I'm glad you crawled out of your cocoon of silence <laughs> to, to give some, to give enthusiasm a shot today. I appreciate that. Yeah. On today's show, we're going to talk about medical school hot takes. Riley, you, uh, you put the show together. I did. Tell us what a hot take is for the for the for the kids out there who've never heard. For the kids out there, and I only define it because I feel like I've asked people. I'll say, "Oh, what's your hot take?" And they're like, "What are you talking about?" But generally, a hot take is just like an unpopular opinion. In some ways, they can be like as aggressive of an unpopular opinion or like not aggressive at all. An example of a hot take, especially for me around the Midwest, is that my hot take is I think ranch sucks. Like, I just do not think that ranch is a good sauce. Okay. I don't think it should be going on everything. Like, Midwesterners are like, hey, get me a pizza and bring me a bottle of ranch with it. Are you kidding me? It's a pizza. Okay. As somebody from not the Midwest, I did not know this was a thing, and I'm very disappointed in everybody from here I know. No, but we could get hate mail from for this. Like, people die for ranch. I have friends that are like, don't even give me Hidden Valley ranch. Like, it's terrible. Sorry about Hidden Valley if they're... Sponsor us. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sure if Hidden Valley is a sponsor. I'm not sure of this if Hidden show, Valley is a sponsor of the Shortcoat Podcast. But so that's an idea of like a hot take where you're gonna get people that are like, "Are you like, are you sane? Like, are you okay?" Because that is a terrible take. I like ranch. Interesting. I like ranch, but I don't like it on pizza. But would you die for it? No, like a, I wouldn't every die other for Midwesterner? it. Would you, you put it on salad? Oh, I guess that's okay. anything else. No, normal use. Okay, good. Yeah. Normal no. use. I might dip a fry into it experimentally, but I don't think I would be like, "Oh, I have to have ranch with my fries." See, I have friends that will get like a sandwich, like a burger and fries. Ranch is not a staple for either of those items, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they will specifically ask for ranch. Sorry to all my friends who may, who are probably not listening, and I'm my, just absolutely flaming my your moron ranch friends. Habits. Yeah, it's terrible. I'm so, sure they're nice people, but maybe you need better friends. I don't know. <laughs> No. Another example of one of the best hot takes that I've ever gotten is that the alphabet should be reordered because it's arbitrarily ordered right now. We should be reordering it in the order that letters are appearing in our day-to-day life. Vowels should be at the top. Mm. R, M, C, so you, things that are commonly used. It's a very value-based system. It's very value-based. Like, Why are we keeping the alphabet as is? So that's a great point. I don't have a comeback, really. Because <laughs> there's a song with it, I guess. Yeah, I already know the song. So <laughs> Everyone the song knows the song. Well, but that, have you guys heard the alphabet song changed? I'm pretty sure kids these days are learning a new alphabet Excuse song. Me. Oh, no. Oh, is it be- oh, I think I heard about this because the LMNOP part is like really confusing. Yes. Right? And it's very fast. Where There's something where it like goes much slower through those parts. Yes. I have heard. I've heard tail. The, of this phenomenon. <laughs> Thanks to uh, They Might Be Giants, I can say the alphabet backwards. So Go. 
Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-I-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. See, what's stopping us from that being the correct order of the alphabet? Just saying. The song isn't as sketchy. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's just yeah. Love, it's just naming things. We can make a new song. <laughs> okay, well, now that we've thoroughly defined <laughs> hot takes and given examples of, of hot takes, um, do you want to share any hot takes that you have about med school life? I, feel like- I have like a whole list, but I'm not. I'm going to let you guys think about some first because I had time to think about these and I also crowdsourced so um, well you could also I know start you us have off. at least one hot take Jeff. I, I probably have a lot of hot takes give but me I would a hot like take. to continue to be a medical student no no no, so no, no. Give, give me a hot take <laughs> let's say give me a subject and I'll give you a hot take all right genetic engineering Mm, you you got me. <laughs> you got me there. There's a backstory here. Okay. Sweet Dave was walking down the hallway the other day and heard me arguing vehemently with one of my friends on this very subject. Call out your friend. <clears throat> Faith. Faith is a sweetheart. She she really is. Mm. But she's wrong. She needs to know that she's wrong. And that's okay. Here's the thing. Everybody hears gene editing and they think, oh, we're talking about CRISPR-Cas9. So if you don't know what that is, go ahead and Google it. Kids at home. It's a phenomenal technology, but it's also dated. We've gone to base editing and now prime editing. Like we're getting better at this. And because we're getting better at this, I think we have an ethical obligation to continue to try um, developing it for human trial. And I think that there is absolutely no ethical reason why we shouldn't be trying to address genome deficiencies. Whereas other people are like, no, don't play God. I'm like, well, I mean, modern medicine, that's literally all we do. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe this isn't just, maybe this is, this is the logical next step. Okay. This is an incredibly interesting hot take. Yeah. And it gets me a lot of fire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And by polarizing, you mean it's me versus the world apparently, because I I will be honest with you. My degree is in my undergrad degree was in biotechnology and in hushed tones in our labs, we all agree. But we don't say anything to you, everybody else, because everybody else gets uncomfortable. I have no problem with this, assuming that humans are able to use such things for good. Yeah, you know, absent the motivations of people who who want to do just weird things. Yeah, and and, and, people, and weird things, you know, obviously is is in the eyes of the beholder, so that's kind of a problem too. But people like to to poo poo on the idea because they're like, well, it can be used for bad. And well, I mean, every technology can be used for bad. Yes. The internet is a perfect example. Have you seen Twitter? I mean, <laughs> well, now that, El- now that ah, Elon... Well, now Twitter's not going to sponsor us. Now that, now that Elon has taken over, I'm sure things will be great. I, I can't imagine it getting actually much worse. Like, it's already pretty bad. But that said, the technology can also be used for good, yes. right? Yes. And I think the same thing. And when people talk about, well, what about consent and stuff? I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, an embryo didn't really consent to becoming, you know... A, a human being but here we are it is a human being right and yeah. it's just going to be a thing so you know i always think of robert heinlein i don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this guy who's a uh, science fiction author famous science fiction author from like mid-century name a book i don't know names is why i asked uh, stranger in a strange land clearly don't read enough <laughs> i have no idea who this is okay, okay well, well anyway anyway. anyway he was a weirdo <laughs> I, I will acknowledge that he had problematic takes good science fiction author for the time had had a problematic views among his views though that i'm not sure i don't agree with is we don't really own our genes well that's like confusing my brain but he was also a uh, big at least at least in his fiction he was also big into eugenics and and i don't know incest i mean just all yeah. kinds of you see and people always take gene editing to eugenics but i'm like I mean, you saw what the United States or Germany did in the early 1900s. They didn't have gene editing technology. They just went nuts, right? So the fact that like this new technology isn't going to lead us down that road unless we choose to. And I think as a society, fingers crossed, we've chosen not to go down that road already. So I think we're probably fine. You can use this in a way that's productive without going down the eugenics path, right? Okay. This is why we need bioethicists. Like, I know that there are some bioethicists that are going to do some good work to make sure that this is within a scope that works. Yeah, there's obviously, like, there's that part of me that sees where you're coming from and that internal part of me that feels like, like, ooh, that, like, there's an icky part to it, too. Not because you're explaining it improperly, just because I, 
I don't always believe the best in humanity. That's fair. So. I, I am like an incorrigible optimist when it comes to the like the human spirit. I'm happy I, for you. I do believe that <laughs> in the end, we'll do the right thing. So I just got off of OB and this is just a really interesting topic because they we were with some patients that were doing like in vitro fertilization. And so they had embryos and they would test the embryos before they implanted them to see if there were any genetic abnormalities. And like, you could also see if it was like male or female, but when they were choosing embryos, they wouldn't let the parents like choose if it was male or female. It was just whatever happened to get chosen, but they would make sure they were all genetically healthy. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, so, We're already yeah. doing it. We're just doing it a little less sophisticated than if I changed the genome. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's scales get though, of mail, what you I'm could sorry. be changing. That's that'll yeah. that'll ultimately be like where this problem lies. Because yeah, like everyone, I think most people would agree that if you have an embryo that is genetically like let's just say they have some genetic condition in which they will not survive past the first year of life. A lot of people, if given the technology, let, this is a lot of hypotheticals. If the technology was sophisticated enough that you could edit that out and create a genome in which that child, or I guess that embryo, I should say, would live longer than the first year of life. A lot of people would be like, yeah, that's like a really good use of yeah, this. It feels like a no brainer, right? Yes. But like at the same time, it's like there are other aspects to it where I know this conversation happens a lot with choosing embryos that do or do not have Down syndrome and whether or not that is in some ways being like eugenic against just those people who are genetically diverse. Are we going to minimize genetic diversity? And I'm not going to like, I'm not going to dip my toe into that world and like give any opinion, but that's like kind of where that goes, where you see there's like some that would be really awesome and really life-saving. And then there would be some that would just be for maybe less benign reasons. I, my closing argument, because this is a, this is a phenomenal point. I do not want to limit our genetic diversity, right? But yeah. prime, prime editing technology is actually being used in several species that have been bottlenecked to increase genetic diversity ah. so that those species can continue. And the idea is if you're choosing an IVF, right? You're choosing the embryo that doesn't have trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome. I feel like that's your that's your eugenics, right? That's selecting them out yeah. of the population. If you have an embryo and you're able to, not that we can do this yet, this is not, you know, this is a complete hypothetical, but you're able to remove that extra chromosome, it is the same person genetically without the the limitation that that extra chromosome might impinge on their life, right? And so, it, I don't know, in my mind, and I understand this is also, you know, a, a touchy issue for a lot of people, it's like cochlear implants. You're not changing the person. Mm. You're just you're changing a limitation that they might face in our modern world. That's a okay. I know I get the argument. I like that, that they closing. Don't want that, no, but. I like that closing. I I appreciate that closing argument. I could talk about this all day, but we have other hot takes. Yeah, to let's, yeah. <laughs> let's let's not throw me under the bus. We've got enough hate mail coming, so let's. let's I'm move about on. to make another. Episode I would love to and actually invite you I, back on. I would love to hear from listeners how they feel about you know that topic it's i think it's a really interesting topic that we could maybe explore in the future i would like to know if listeners want us to touch on more of these like touchy topics yeah. in a very human way in which none of us know what the right answer is nobody in this world knows what the right answer is and we're all just humans expressing opinions and like trying to work through things well, in like, a jeff. very respectful way jeff knows except the right jeff. answer i, I do right but <laughs> do you guys do you guys follow hank green at all yeah, yeah. hank green sponsor us so uh, he, he had a cute video the other day that i love I, the idea that hank green is like huh, i need i need more listeners i yeah. need more yeah. i need more <laughs> viewers i know yeah but he, he had a conversation the other day where he, he he realized that people like questions that are just complicated enough that there isn't a right answer mm -hmm. And that's what they like to have conversations about, right? And and that's exactly what these questions are. Yeah, there isn't a right answer, and that's okay. Yeah, you know. Okay, Riley, bring us bring us to med school hot takes. Med school hot takes. Okay, so medical school. I mean, we talk about them a lot on the podcast. There's just hot takes left and right. Whether people like certain study habits, whether people hate certain clerkships, whether they think certain clerkships should be required, not required. There's a whole host of them. And this podcast was in some ways crowdsourced through students at the University of Iowa, as well as students on websites like Reddit who are vocal about their hot takes. So I thought we could go through some of them and just discuss 
And if you guys think of any of your own, feel free to interject. But I'll go ahead and just like start us off with my hot take that I tell just about everyone. But I I just think Anki is terrible. I think it's I don't think that it works for most studying in medical school. I think most people should not be using Anki for pathology, for just like mechanisms of disease. And most people do that. Explain Anki for those Anki who might not have gotten is essentially yet. a flashcard app. Mm-hmm on web computer i have used it full disclosure i've used anki to study things that are primarily memorization so pharmacology which is the study of drugs microbiology the study of like microbes and diseases i think it's great for those i think it's absolutely terrible to understand how the heart works how does heart disease happen how does chronic kidney disease come about all of those things i think it's terrible for so I will I'll give you just a little bit of pushback. I agree. It is good for discrete information, right? Those factoids, right? This microbe does this one thing, right? Yes. Excellent for that. It isn't very good for things where you need to synthesize various facts together because you're only learning one fact at a time. And then, you know, maybe you put them together in your on your brain. Maybe you didn't. People have been using flashcards probably since there's been paper, right? Like we've always been writing things down and then looking at it. Mm-hmm. This is just a little bit better way of doing it. I think that it can be used well if you're not just using it for those discrete facts. Like I'll throw out flashcards that'll have the whole like how like like a whole pathway. I'll have the whole pathway and then I'll see the card and then I'll draw it out. And that's how I put all the things together. But I have that card to remind me to do that every day. Mm. There are ways to use it well and there are ways that are not helpful for for medical students. And yeah, I've seen a lot of people try to discrete fact their way through mechanisms of health and disease. And it is it's not going well for them. Yeah. I also think it can't be the only thing. Oh, like yes. I've used Anki as well, but I'm not only using Anki to study all the time. Like you have to use other methods of studying in addition to it. At least that's my experience. I will fullheartedly agree with Jeffrey on this. I feel like you need to understand and synthesize the information through some other method before you turn to Anki as your primary tool because I think that Anki really like its value lies in its ability to like systematize your studying so like what I love about Anki I use it quite frequently um, is that like I don't have to remember to go back and study specific topics that we haven't covered in days or weeks or even months because Anki does that work for me it like kind of goes through and decides based on how hard I've said this card was in the past like okay you don't actually know this topic super well so I'm going to bring it up again at a time where I think it would be like it will maximize your benefit for understanding the material and that you won't actually forget it and so I think if you have another way that you personally can accomplish that that works better for you I think you should totally do it but I think that I love Anki personally for that that one and sole reason is that otherwise I would just forget everything a week after. I, I think I that it's it. a crutch. If you don't use it well, it'll hurt you. And if you use it well, it, it can be. It's like the um, the study guides or study whatever. Guides, study yeah. guides. Yeah. No, they they not, tell uh, us to fill out to take yeah. into our tests, right? For for foundations where you're just drawing all of these metabolic pathways that are. Let's be honest, you're gonna forget them a thousand times anyway, right? But then they'll just do that. And then they don't study anything. They just draw it out and they take their paper in and they're like, I've learned something, right? And they'll pass the test and then they don't they don't know anything. I think a lot of people do the same thing with Anki where they're like, I learned all these discrete facts. And then right after the test, they're like, well, that's that's in the past. Who needs to know that? It's because I'm not anti-science. Like science says spaced repetition, which is what Levi was describing, this idea that you, you know, revisit information in kind of set amount of time. Anki does that for you. It like will bring up a card that you learned two months ago and you're like, whoa, newsflash, kind of forgot that. And then you relearn it. That's awesome. I know that science says that that is probably the top tier way to study. But I am coming from just a background in which like my entire undergrad was just kind of more problem solving based, more like mechanism based, and you never had all the information. And that's why I feel like medical school is you never have all the information. So if you rely on Anki and you didn't see a specific card and you don't understand the framework for which something is set in, then you're going to get to a medical school test in which you already know you're not going to have all the information and you're going to feel a bit frazzled because you didn't take the time to study mechanisms and the gaps that mechanisms have. So instead of just studying how does blood vessel resistance contribute to 
blood pressure and thinking about it in terms of, okay, well, I saw my Anki card. It was decreased resistance is decreased blood pressure. <laughs> so if you didn't see the two arrows, and I just did that because I thought about the equation. So I think understanding the background of things, you can do that in a much quicker way than sitting down and doing a thousand flashcards a day. And also I think it's mind numbing. And then you get to an exam and yeah, you may have not like seen the exact question on the exam, but you have the tools in your brain to work through that problem. Also, I don't know. <laughs> it seems to me that that doesn't really tell you about why people have high blood pressure, why, what the social determinants of health are that, that contribute to having high Correct. blood pressure. It doesn't. <laughs> like yeah, it only, it basically the message I'm hearing is. Anki's great. It only takes you so far. You've got to do other things. Yeah. So I will digress. And I also like recognize, as these two have mentioned, like it can be used for good. And you can also (laughs) integrate that. Use Anki for for evil. evil. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I have a hot take follow up on this. Go ahead. Based on what you've said. Please. The most important class. One of the most important classes that you have it's to take. It's not a hot take if you go, if one you of. hedge. Okay, so you know let's what? Just, let's not hedge. The yeah. most important class that you can take to be a good clinician or a good medical student is going to be physics in your undergrad. And this is why. It teaches okay, you this to, is, teaches, I love this take. This. It teaches you to synthesize information in a way that you do not get in any of your other STEM courses. You just don't. Snaps. I'm snapping. Oh. I think this is so... I completely agree. And all of my classmates hate me for this, but it is true. You need to be able to synthesize information. You need to create relationships. You need to be able to understand how things equate to one another, which is all physics is, is teaching you these relationships. And once you can put those things in, just like you just did with the arrows, right? Like you understand the equation, you can synthesize the information together. And I think that at least for like on the diagnostic side of things, you know, the the social side of medicine, obviously it's its own thing. And that's, we need a lot of classes for that. But for like the, the job of trying to figure out the mechanisms of disease, we need more physics. That makes, actually that, yeah, now that I think about it, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, just in the hypertension Example, you know, if you've never learned that, you know, the diameter of a pipe influences and the length of the pipe and all this kind of all this kind of physics stuff. Yeah. And, and it doesn't like hypertension has nothing to connect to, I guess, in yeah. terms of like why why it's a. Yeah. I mean, you, certainly there's a lot of biophysics that you need to learn in the body, but also just the general ideas of how you put things together like that. That's just so useful. All right. I agree. Right. Wow. Yeah, now that we're on the top of undergrad i'm gonna give my hot take which is that the u.s should follow more of like a european model of medical school Mm -hmm. so for those that aren't familiar with europeans kind of medical school path they basically just go right out of high school into medical school so you apply while you're in high school and then go on rather than doing an undergrad like we do in the u.s so what you you guys know why we have that you have to have a bachelor's degree for almost every medical school in this country, right? I have no idea. I can't remember. Educate us. I can't remember the name of the specific act, but it was essentially this guy created all of these standards to kind of standardize the the quality of medical education in the country. But it ended up basically being let's get rid of all of the black medical colleges in the you country. You are talking oh. about the Flexner report. Flexner report. There it is, and that that was essentially was a big part of that was making sure that you had a standardized education before you came to medical school. And yes, I would burn it all down. Let's go back to just right out of high school. If you can do well on your, your whatever test that we want for medical school, let's go in. The The one caveat is I also want to make sure that, you know, if we have a 30 year old or a 35 year old that wants to go to medical school, they can. But in the United States, a 35 year old can also start their bachelor's degree. So I think we're comfortable with that idea. I agree with a caveat and I'm going to introduce a new hot take. My hot take is that I think everyone should be required to work a job outside of medicine before entering medical school and research does not count. I am talking outside of the scope of anything medical school related. Like you have to pay your own bills, like make money. You are paying your own bills. You are doing an internship that is paid because we pay people and we respect paying people. And it is not in anything medical adjacent. You are not a scribe, you're not a CNA. You're nothing medical adjacent and you must do that so that you can confirm that you want to go to medical okay, school. So that is a hot take because we can pick this apart with sort of reasons why say a CNA or any kind of nurse should just be able to use that as their working experience before they come to medical school. But I think what you're really saying is like <clears throat> whatever 
job you do have needs to teach you something about life. <laughs> Correct. Teach you about life and Outside in some ways like yes. <laughs> confirm that medicine is not or is exactly what you want to go into. Yeah. No, I yeah, I can appreciate that. I I know there's holes, but No, I <laughs> so poke the holes. I one thousand percent agree with you, Riley. I will back that up Hot with take. my full chest. Hot take. A thousand percent. A hot take. I'm a thousand percent part of this. I the, the am... math doesn't work out, but okay. But I'm actually a thousand percent also not in support of going straight into medical school from high school. And I'll tell you why. And feel free to disagree. Oh no, with you me. have to work first. Remember that. Yeah, was remember you have to do a year. Okay. You have to work first. You have yes, to gap year in. So high, work high school, first. high school, so high gap school year to med working. School. You can do a gap year. You could do something crazy. Go live in the mountains. But yeah. you're working should we just in the like send a letter to the par- Department of Education and just like ask them to put us in charge of this? Because we can we can knock this out in a year. We got this. I think we could. Yeah. I know. Please proceed though. I want to know. I'll just say I. I think that we all have had experiences in undergrad with being around other pre-meds and kind of that pre-med mentality. And I had kind of like a very interesting and particular experience in that the undergrad school that I went to had a program that was actually kind of like what you're describing. So essentially through combined like BA, MD, dual programs, the undergrad that I went to, like you could essentially interview for medical school when you were in high school. And once you were accepted into this dual degree program, you were granted conditional acceptance to that medical school after you finished your undergrad. And so there's a lot of like very interesting things that we can talk about. The peculiarities about all of that and how that worked at this specific school. But I will say that what I thought was really interesting going through undergrad is that like it was very clear the people who were part of this you know, program and and they were already accepted into medical school and and they had, you know, kind of already decided from a very early point that this is what they wanted to do versus the other people who were in pre-med classes who just were still kind of figuring it out. And I will say that some of like my best friends happened to be in this program, but a good number of them actually didn't end up going into medicine at the end of the day. You know, like they ended up realizing that medicine wasn't for them, that they were 16 years old when they signed a contract saying that they were going to go into medical school and that it's unrealistic to expect a 16 year old or 17 year old to know what they want to do for the rest of their lives. And they should be given that freedom to kind of, you know, explore themselves and explore their identities and figure out what's going to be best for them. And so honestly, since coming, especially coming to CECOM, some of my really good friends have been people who have taken extended periods of time away from school and from medicine and have had other careers because you know, that is really like I think what you're saying, Riley, like made them such well-rounded people and made them so like just indispensable to medicine. I'm so excited to see the like great things that they're going to do, you know. So like I think that for some people it may be beneficial to have like kind of a European system, but I could definitely see where that would exacerbate some issues that we already have in American healthcare. So I have some follow-up hot takes. Got a few of them. They're coming quick. Ready? First, should medicine be more of a trade? Um, Mm. If we're talking about the fact that healthcare is just exorbitantly expensive, like it's ridiculous, right? If it were not so prestigious to be a doctor, if you didn't have to go to school for 13 years to be a specific type of surgeon, right? I mean, you're getting paid for some of that, but still like 13 years of training, maybe we wouldn't have to pay them $750,000 a year. You know, like maybe there was a way to do that differently. I'm not saying that it needs to be a trade, but it could be right. So if we're, if we're doing that, I, I will make the argument that the whole point of a bachelor's degree isn't so that you know how to do a skill. That's an associate's degree. Like I can get an associate's in computer programming and be really good at it. But if I get a bachelor's in computer science, there's there's an expectation that I'm a little bit more well-rounded, that I've taken some humanities courses, that I've taken some uh, chemistry or biology or something that kind of makes me a more well-rounded person. Do you need that to practice medicine? Can I, I interject with an example yeah. that I saw online? So somebody's hot take was that certain specialties, and they gave the examples of dermatology and psychiatry, should be entirely separated from medicine, almost like a dental or optometry school. Oh, my almost hot take is that dentistry trade. should definitely be brought in. But oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Ooh, okay. So separations <laughs> of schools. But in yeah. some ways, that was kind of, it reminded me of what you're saying, like trade, more trade-like in which you're, immediately entering specialties as opposed to getting this kind of like holistic education prior to then choosing a specialty. Yeah. 
I mean, medical school itself could be a lot shorter, right? And we know this because several schools are doing it and doing it well, right? And NYU, every single one of their residency programs, if you're interested in that day one of medical school, you only do three years and then you go right into their residency program, right? A lot of people do it with primary care. Rural medicine is pretty common, right? Maybe medical school doesn't have to be that long. Maybe those types of specialties are you just like, let's go right into it. We don't, we don't need all this other hullabaloo. I don't know. I guess if you separated out the specialties, though, I feel like it's just harder to kind of get a sense when you are in that earlier stage of what you want to do. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've definitely just done on my core year rotations, like had a lot of mixed reviews. You know, I thought I wasn't going to like something and I ended up liking it a lot or the other way around. And that's, I think, why we have all these two week rotations is because you need some exposure, even if a judgment is made that, well, you know, not as many people are going to end up going into this profession, but you need some exposure to it to decide whether or not that's going to be true or not. The, The other thing I was thinking about when we were talking about taking a year off, one of the arguments against taking the year off is financial. So if you Take a year off. That's another year that you're not making an attending salary so that you can pay back your student loans. So, okay, I get that. I also think that, you know, given how much money certain specialties can make, maybe that's not as important for some some folks than it would be for other people. But it is a thing to consider. I guess I just don't want those specialties to be making that much money. I think that's probably my heart take. Like, I don't know if the prestige that we we offer certain fields, like obviously they've earned it, but at the same time, it is certainly a, it's crippling our, our medical system that that some things are just so ridiculously expensive. And a huge chunk of that is administration, but also a huge chunk of that is doctors who point the finger at administration when they're making $500,000 plus, you know, when the median household income in the United States is $60,000. Like, I, I don't know if they need a third boat. I just, I don't know. <laughs> I want one boat. I don't want to have to rent my boat. I need a boat. I've always, look, I've always wanted a boat. I grew up on Cape Cod. Do you need three boats? I just want one boat. Then you can get one boat. We'll give you one. Every time okay. I asked my parents for a boat, they were like, a boat is a hole into water to which you throw money. Want a boat. That's how I feel about boats. That's my hot take is boats are lame. (laughs) You got to make friends with the people that have boats. You don't want to own the boat yourself. Oh, yeah. That's 100% true. You want to make friends with the people who have lake houses. Don't own your own lake house. You have to make friends with the people who have a pool. Don't have your own pool. It's all about networking. I just want to say med students, keep in touch then. (laughs) So I can enjoy your boat in your lake house. Short Coats, we love to hear from you. No matter what. It's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. I'm going to offer a completely opposite hot take. Go ahead. I think there should be an option. I should say this. I will hedge. I think there should be an (laughs) option for medical school to actually be longer. And I'll tell you why. And I mean, says the MD, says the MD, PhD student. student. I understand that. Years is not enough, guys. This is not enough. No, I'll tell you why. I think that this should be an option. I understand. This is going back to what Dave mentioned about, you know, some people, especially folks who enter later in their lives into medicine, like the financial concern is a real concern, right? Especially within the system that we have where we're spending 50, 80, $100,000 a year on medical school debt like I think that's atrocious so obviously other things would need to be worked out but I think that one of the potentially big issues that I interpret with medical education is how much information is packed into such little time and how that affects the mental health of people going through medical school like I really do believe that when people are given more time liberty it's it's the Mm -hmm. idea of like having having more control over your time and having more free time to spend with how you see fit. There's been lots of studies that show that the more free time people have, like there's a direct correlation with their mental health and surprise, surprise in medical school. A lot of us have like very little free time to do the things that we love. If we want to keep our heads above water, there are many different ways that you can like go about like still having, you know, a good mental health throughout medical school. And that's kind of like a whole other topic of discussion. But I think that when you see like, factoids being thrown out that 50 or I think it's like 70% of medical students are on SSRIs you know like there's this I don't want to call it an epidemic because I feel like that's trivializing it but of like of suicide rates increasing throughout medical school and medical training I'm like 
maybe we're i don't know like pushing too hard pushing people a little too hard exactly and like making people feel like they have to be studying 24 7 to like keep up with the material i feel like if there was an option to prolong medical school to take that burden off of people to be like okay maybe you don't need to get out in four years maybe like you can do five years right but we're not going to charge you for five years maybe we treat it like we treat undergrad right like some people get their bachelor's in three years. Some people get it in five. Oh, Make it a little bit more flexible. Fun. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the logistics there. It's no different than we do for undergrad. The it is different, are, though, because the, what we do in medical education is we put everybody on the same path. You know, courses are taught one semester and one semester only. If you miss that course... Or if you choose not to take that course, for instance, if you were able to do that, then you have to wait a whole year for that course to come around again. And that's just, I don't know if, I, I mean, I feel like that's so common wrong, yeah. among schools. Also, you know, like the AAMC has been pushing for integrated curriculums. And so we've done that. We've integrated our curriculum such that, you know, courses are supposed to, you know, sort of reinforce each other and cover topics several times from different perspectives in different situations you would lose some of that in principle i I do like this idea something to be said for the idea that like one of the values of medical school is that it is hard because it teaches you how to how to react under pressure because let's be honest lives will be on the line for a lot of our careers right not not everybody is going to be practicing medicine in emergency situations right but a lot of us will at least for some of our residency right so there is some value to be said to said that like how can I put them under a lot of pressure so that they can learn how to adapt to that pressure? But like you said, it's often too much. And how do we fix that? I have a different hot take. Dave Etler's hot take. We should accept and acknowledge people who want to go to med school, but who do not want to practice medicine. Ooh. Oof. Oh, yeah, I think that's fair. That's like a good from one. the beginning, they've chosen to go to medical school, but they do not want to practice. Or people who decide yeah. during medical school that practicing medicine isn't right for them and they want to go into some sort of industry use their degree for something different the obvious problem here is that you know med school is largely funded by the state the state has a vested interest in making doctors and doing something other than that could be seen as sort of contrary to that purpose this I mean, is interesting. This is already happening in like the graduate school world in terms of there's kind of a huge debate about whether graduate students will pursue industry versus academia. Yeah. And there's definitely like a downward slope of people choosing academia. I wonder why. Because they I get to do the why. same thing but get paid a decent living wage. Yeah. yeah. Like, I get it. <laughs> crazy concept. I know. It's crazy. But it's interesting because it's like, yeah, I, I've noticed that there's still kind of this taboo of graduate students being like oh i want to go to industry and it's like no you can say that like you're under your own jurisdiction like you're getting trained and you will still be doing research just not in this like cutthroat world and let's be clear people do this in medical school people do this i i have no doubt that people you know maybe they go right from med school into industry or maybe they go maybe they do their residency and then go into in into industry second one might be a more viable path economically but i mean a lot of people the, how many the, people in the mstp program will will choose one or the other even though they have both degrees they're they're going to end up doing one or the other how many do you think it's like it's it's a fairly large percentage right that there's, that's a hard question to answer because there's a lot of people that will do varying degrees of either research or medicine that's fair so that's the hard part is like i don't think I think it's actually more rare than not that people will choose 100% of one or the other. I think there's a there's a chunk that's choosing 100% medicine or 100% research, but most of the cohort is ending up somewhere in, in the, the middle, like in the middle. In yeah. the middle of like 50-50, the, they'll tell 80, you 20. you have to do 80-20. Yeah. I wish there was a PA in the room cuz I have another hot take. Ooh. You ready for this? Yeah. Oh, let's hear it. If a med student doesn't match, they should be able to to choose a P- to be a PA. Yes, yes, so there, much there yes. Was, there was a Midwest state. I don't remember which one, but they like pushed a program a couple of years ago that like essentially unmatched students, they'll just get shipped out to like rural areas and train under essentially an apprentice program and they're yeah. they're basically just practicing medicine without the residency, but yeah. under the under a rural medicine attending, which is a basically a PA. Yeah, I yeah. mean, huh. yeah. I know that my PA colleagues or my PA program colleagues will have some objections 
to that, I think it does feel like, uh, I couldn't be an MD, so I'm going to be a PA, and that feels a little snooty. But also, you know, they were educated largely in the same, at least here, they were educated largely in the same classrooms. They will end up with the same amount of clinical experience. I mean, you know. This is interesting. Seems like a reasonable thing to me. Did you hear that they change, they're changing the name? Yeah, Physician Associates. Yeah. We talked about that on a show a few weeks ago. Go back and listen to that. This was a wonderful transition to yet another hot take source from the internet along the same lines of medical students not matching. So this one reads, and this one I, I wrote under it, the the note, what a take. So here we Let's go. Say, all right. This person's hot take is that medical schools should be held accountable if a student with no red flags, they claim, no fails, passes boards the, board the first time, applies to a reasonable number of programs in line with their scores, etc., does not match. So schools should be held accountable if a student does not match, including full reimbursement of their entire tuition. I'm going to go with no on that. Okay. Yeah. I said um, what a take. I don't believe it. But. Yeah. I just, the idea that like mm, a reasonable number of programs, but if I'm just like middle of the, the, the pack here, which I'll be honest, I might be middle of the pack here, but if I'm middle of the pack and I'm applying to like the most competitive Durham programs in the country or some nonsense, like maybe this is on me that I didn't they match, do right? stipulate that it's reasonable number of programs in line with their scores so in, in like, line with their scores okay, yeah so it's in line with their yeah. scores they've applied yeah I don't know we don't we don't require undergrads to to I'm reimburse gonna, me if I don't get a job after I mean I, I I see what they're saying I didn't say it wasn't hot I, it's a hot take I see what they're saying <laughs> what I would change that to if a student doesn't match we owe it to them to support them in any way that we possibly can our goal shouldn't necessarily be to run them back through the match over and over and over again until they match if that's what they want to do if that's what the student wants to do that's fine but we should as an industry do much more to support those people and i think people would argue that we that we here do that but i i I think there are more paths that should be explored this one's way more about schools that are not iowa than i would say well i I mean our match rate is pretty it's decent yeah Yeah, it's very it's it's pretty good and uh, but, but I like this idea of supporting students that do not match in the pursuit then of something else, something else or, or rematching, whether that be like providing them research opportunities where they're actually making right. a good salary during the year. Like, sure. There's like I'm almost thinking of like where medical schools then have to like subsidize. I mean, salaries for students. If they're saying, oh, you have to wait another year to match like another year. Like I need to go be making at least residency money. And so. Yeah. I'd be curious about what medical students or medical schools could then do to support them. I wonder if that would lead into more of kind of what Dave mentioned earlier, like the PA type path or an apprentice type path that would be incentivized to like have at the school. So saying one of your students didn't match that you would have some of those positions within, you know, University of Iowa or whatever school so that those unmatched people could go to do those jobs because then they would have a salary. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at a state school, like you mentioned, there's a reason why they're putting so much money into the medical school. They would be incentivized to figure something out so that we're not just losing potential doctors. Right. I think ultimately most people end up matching. So that's, I mean, the vast majority of people, even if they have to go through the match a couple of times, eventually if they stick to it, they will. And it does kind of hurt the schools, right? Because it's public record, like our match rate's public record, right? So like at least it it can, potential students will see, oh, well. You'd have to do that. I think you'd have to do the math. I think you would have to actually do the math. I don't think that's. They're not, they're not making it easy on us. They're not, yeah, they're, the schools have no interest in. They have no incentive. They have no, and they have no incentive in like saying, you know, oh, we have, you know, X percent match rate. That would be amazing. Yeah. Maybe they should maybe that should be required. Might be helpful. I mean, you know, we're talking about transparency. I also think pre-meds though don't necessarily have options. I mean, a lot of people just get into one school and yes. so then it's yeah. I don't care what their match rate is, I don't care what their rotations look like, like I'm going there. Yes. That's entirely absolutely fair. most people I always only like get into to one. Bring yeah. That, yeah, I always like that topic, just like making sure people recognize like sometimes you don't have a lot of options. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's okay too. And you only really need one. We meet a lot of DMU students over here in Des Moines, and one thing we've always talked about is how different rotations are depending on what school you're at. Because they're like extremely different just with how they're set up. I mean, we kind of just go into 
you know, I would like to do this rotation and then hopefully I get it. But I think that's one thing that I didn't even know existed as a pre-med. I didn't know you'd have to set up your own rotations at any point in time. I just kind of thought it was a path that you went along similar to like the first couple years of medical school. Yeah. I feel like this is more common with schools that are unaffiliated with an academic medical center. Yeah. So DL schools are often have the situation. PA schools that aren't affiliated with an academic medical institution might also have to re- arrange for their own, you know, clerkships. I just didn't realize that that was even a thing as a pre-med student. You know, I was just looking at the schools and, you know, they would talk about their curriculum, but I had no idea what that meant. So it's almost hard to make an informed decision, even if you do get multiple acceptances. Yeah, I'll be honest. I didn't even, I forgot Iowa was a state. I am not an Iowan. So. <laughs> <laughs> but my father-in-law did dental school here. And so I applied and I, you know, I like it here. I'm having a great time. I get to be on this podcast. I made a lot of friends. I'm learning about medicine. I forgot it was here. So, you know, I get that as a pre-med, you're just, you're shooting your shot. You don't know what's going on. You're doing your best. And that is true it's no matter true, who yeah. you are. Yeah. Looking back on, you know, as a 52-year-old, I had no idea what options were available to me. I'm still discovering options. And I'm like, hmm, that would have been an interesting life that I, I could have been, an, I don't know, what, a machinist. You know, I would have been happy doing that probably. But it's not something that was ever presented to me as an option. And so it was not, you know, something I ever knew to con- even consider. Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. This is slightly off topic, but do any of you, Katie, you included, have like thoughts of, okay, if I didn't go into medicine, what would have been the career choice that you would have picked? Yes. If it can't be like relate, it can't be like related to medicine like at all. Thank you so much for asking. I think about this all the time. I think about this a lot too. I think that's uh, a bad time. Architecture or interior designer. Interesting. Love okay. it. Both of those I would be totally on the yes. <laughs> okay. So look, I just want to make the world a better place. And I might have gone into politics. I might have gone into like entrepreneurship. I, I ran a couple of small businesses before I came to medical school, right? So I might have tried to do that and try to make enough money that I can just like not nobody's gonna be Bill and Melinda Gates again, right? But like that kind of thing where maybe you can just throw a lot of money at problems and that'll help. Right. Something like that. So, so so rich philanthropist. I discovered a new job today that I didn't know existed. Thank you. Yeah. So either that or politics where I just have enough power to like make the world a slightly better place, but that's why I'm in medicine anyway. So that's fair. Katie. Katie. That's nice. I did my undergrad in music and I played French horn Mm. in symphony. So I think I would have probably pursued French horn as like a career, which is really hard to make in, but, or I would have done like a doggy daycare situation. Own a doggy daycare. I think that would really be my best life. Just be around dogs all the time. Why not? Definitely do both. Play French horn for your doggies. Dogs surrounded by dogs. Yeah, and I'll say that sounds that does sound like a dream life. French horn is hard. French horn is hard. I don't know if you've heard French horn players. I played. I have heard that it's. I played French horn for uh, a school year. (laughs) (laughs) So you were obviously an expert. And I'll tell you that the reason I think it's hard is because those heavy, they're heavy, (laughs) heavy instruments. I didn't mean to out myself like this, but I did play tuba, which is a very heavily instrument, but much easier to play. Like, because it's just this big old, like, it doesn't, it always sounds good because nobody knows what it's supposed to sound like, right? So, <laughs> I think it's supposed to sound like this. Yeah. French horn, like, there's, there's just so much finesse to it. So, Dave's going to be a machinist. I, I would say probably more uh, something that where, where you work with your hands, mm. like carpentry. Yeah, it could be carpentry. It you could have been be... a surgeon. They work with their hands, I hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Small potatoes. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that I always used to. Uh, I always fantasize about, you know, I, I watch a lot of uh, sort of DIY YouTube channels or mm. people making things on YouTube. And I'm always very impressed by um, the skill and the uh, amount of learning that goes into these um, things that I think pe- a lot of people don't really think about that. So anyway, that's just, but I'm not going in, I'm not in medicine. I'm just in medical education. So Levi, I would have been a linguist. Oh, that's cool. Good take. Yeah, I went, I, I studied languages in college. And so I did some like study abroad for a while. I really loved that. I feel like I would have just like been moving around, been very poor and 
a studied language you know that's it really been a cool fun time you guys all chose things that in some ways your like skill set is privy toward like i didn't even try to go into architecture or interior di- designing. I, I like how you think my like, skill set is like being a rich. philanthropist. <laughs> that's, that is definitely yeah, my skill set. But I literally, like, I wouldn't even say I have like a creative, I do have a creative bone in my body, but I wouldn't have thought that going into undergrad. But now I feel maybe more inclined. But I do well, think again, it's about it's about being exposed to ideas that, you know, and the longer you live, the more ideas and, and, and options you're exposed to. But unfortunately... Again, 52-year-old man speaking here. The longer you work, the more your options, in some sense, get narrowed. And that's why all pre-meds should think about what job they would do outside of medicine. So they have to do their one year of work outside of medicine in said job. There Politics. you go. Brought Rich it back around. Brought it back around. Rich philanthropy at 19. Yeah, that's, that's going to be my day job. Just to make sure that medicine's what I really want. Yeah. He apprentice Bill Gates for a couple yeah. of months. <laughs> I just design a few buildings while I'm at it. Perfect. Yeah. Just in between <laughs> high school and medical school. I have another hot take, actually. Please. Oh, please. Just to bring it, just to bring it back around when we were talking about rotations, and I will I will preamble this with a caveat. I have not done any of my rotations <laughs> yet, but I think there should be an option <laughs> to only rotate through surgery and OB for like two weeks. I think it should I think there should be like an abbreviated rotation like we have for like emergency medicine like we have for derm like all these other things especially for folks who know that that is not what they want to do at all you know I think there should be an option to not suffer through 12 weeks of that you're like I really don't care for babies and I don't want to see the insides of my patients exactly (laughs) two weeks but I think that like it should be an option that you can opt into and again this administratively would be a nightmare but I think it should be an option that you can opt into when you're in the rotation. Does that make sense? So I like, you're like this, yeah. Oh, you're so like, like once you get there and you're like, wow, this sucks. Yeah, yeah like two like, days in, you're like, two weeks. Oh, this is even more of an administration nightmare. <laughs> exactly. And you're like, actually, I only want to do the three-week version of this. And then I'm going to go out and do like, I don't know, like, I'm trying to think of something where you can like fill the rest of that. Palliative care. Weeks. That was another hot take that we got is that palliative care should be a rotation. Oh, I so absolutely That's where think we that. fill in palliative care. For those <gasps> who don't know, idea. palliative care is the counseling of patients near the end of life. Ten weeks of that might be a lot. It, specifically, palliative care is about making a patient comfortable. Correct. Yeah. Yes. It's hospice adjacent, but very much more like pointed. Yeah. I, I know think- we're singling out like OB and surgery, but then I feel like you have to single out all the rest of them because like mm-hmm. I would have opted out of some IM weeks for sure. <laughs> so we have circled back completely to personalized medical school. Like- I think yeah. I should be able to personally pick every part of my medical school the- training is what we've come to realize. <laughs> Look, so this if we just pod- do it right after high school, <laughs> you can build it like you build your undergrad degree. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, Let's we go, have, I mean, completely rewritten medical school education today. <laughs> We're all going to work before that. Dave is crying, thinking of all the paperwork you yeah. have to do. Dave is like, I cannot post this episode. How do because- I write that MSP? I just don't know. I know. It's like the Build-A-Bear of medical school. Yeah. And then I'll add, to our new, our, I'll add to our new structure that things like surgical specialties and then like more internal medicine kind of problem-solving specialties should be completely separate. And you shouldn't even have to do the other subset. Oh, so you're saying like, we want to go back to the days when surgeons the were just surgeons barbers were and just like, send yeah. them out on their own thing. Yep. But bring the dentists in. Because but bring the dentists in. Yeah. Get rid of the do surgeons. Do they go into bring surgery in or do they go into the other one? I guess it depends on what kind of dentistry. Mm-hmm. They're going into surgery. Let's just yeah. put them over there. Okay. So yeah. the surgeons and dentists go to one school. Yeah. This is hot take week. We don't, wow. we don't hedge anything. The other anything. specialties stay yeah. in the other one. Oof. You know, surgery gets like the urologies, the we gynes. And Durham that- will do like little rotations over there every once in a while. Same with optometry or op, not optometry ophthalmology i got a sassy hot take for the two mstps in the room i Uh-oh. guess like if you're struggling with you know medical school is hard we, we all know this it's a lot of material really fast and if you just gonna get burnt out a little bit just take a break in the middle and do a phd you know i uh, agree just <laughs> save you from all that burnout so, so this this is <laughs> I, this is concurrent with what i sometimes hear from md phd students so here at iowa you go through your preclinical curriculum and then you at least up until recently, you did some rotations. Yes. And then you went off into the lab for a zillion years. And the sense of relief that I have heard from a lot of PhD students, you know, MD PhD students, when they get to that phase where they're in, in the lab is like, 
It's profound for some people. I myself am one, and I felt that way. And I wasn't expecting to feel that way because I actually genuinely liked medical school. I liked the problem solving. I liked being in the hospital. I liked the clinical experiences. But the moment I got to my PhD world, and nobody's asking you when you're coming in. No one's asking you. Like, no one's checking in on you to make sure you are where you say you are. No one's, like, evaluating you constantly. I just was like... My gosh! See this circle. So this goes this back circles, to your point. Yes, it's called, and I, the the word came back to me. It's called Please. time affluence, not liberty. And you, I have you that. had you had, or now you still have it. Time affluence, like you can do with what, like you still have to get things done. Yes, but you can structure your day however you'd like to structure. And there it, are right? downsides like, to it. But absolutely. I was, I was profoundly <laughs> affected by the fact that I just like had more time and I had more ability to like sit with my thoughts during the day I wasn't rushing all the time there were some days where I like had crazy busy days some days where I was like okay well projects are done I can kind of take it easy today it's lovely I will say that my (laughs) friends that have only done a PhD no MD involved at all you know they're they're weeping day after day and us, medical way. school is so rough that we're like oh this is a break like yes that that says something to how frustrating medical school can be no it I does think. yeah <laughs> i will say that conversely towards the end of one's phd it's also common for me to hear like i am so stressed out because the last eight years my data sucks. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Yeah, that's I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to turn this into a, a into a dissertation. Okay, you know? hot take because this is important for for science for replicability, right? It is just as important to publish your your results that didn't come out like you wanted. Yes, we need uh, to know when yeah. things yes. didn't turn out. We need Thank more you. negative need data. Yes, yeah, you should reach out to. Thing. Yeah, we got to reach out to some some publications just yeah. to like get that ball rolling because they do not do that. I have one more. I think that a portion. And this goes to the PhD thing. So anyway, I think a portion of your PhD should be required to be reproducing somebody else's work. Oh, I also oh, like I love this. That. I that love is a that. Solid good yes. take. Because that is yeah. good for all of science. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have people right now that are wanting to reproduce work because the currency of science is publishing. And to publish, as we've just mentioned, you cannot publish negative data, and like reproducibility is not. This is also, genius. We, you do, do one year. One year, you could get. So so much done just reproducing experiments in one year and it's the beginning well you've learned a little you've gotten like trained on things yeah you will reproduce results you will learn every assay under the sun by the time you get to your phd work chef's kiss you're Mm. ready and i feel like like it's a good training tool too because it's like you know in what in other people's hands what the data should look like theoretically right you know like the techniques they used to to get that data so like you know in some ways it's kind of like not a litmus test but like you know you know because you because you want your data to be independent right it doesn't have to conform to whatever they have but like it also helps you like you know just understand techniques and like be like okay this is what like this other well-respected lab mm-hmm. put out like i trust their hands you know like i think they probably did a good job right like and you learned how to write science because yeah. you may, in reproducing science, realize that they did not write this well enough that you can even reproduce it. I was just looking at a paper and I was trying to write a method and they didn't have the method that I needed oh and All not well enough to write the method. All the time. And so then PhD students become better writers because they've gone through the pain. And then 10 years from now, we're just cruising. How about this? Hot take. Publications should have a strict word limit and a syllable limit. Syllable limit. Syllable limit. Interesting. Yes. I'm pretty sure they already do have word limits. <laughs> There's definitely got to be word limits. There's definitely word limits. If you can't, unfortunately. If, if, so when I look at, sometimes when I look at publications for this show, I cannot figure out what they are saying because, and I'm a reader. I'm a good reader. I have an excellent vocabulary. I know what hegemony means. Okay. I- <laughs> If you he looked it up right before the show, like, guys. Can, can you what share, I'm saying, can you share? what I am saying, <laughs> is that you should be able to construct sentences in your publication that are brief and to the point and are understandable by normal human beings. Can I follow up? Yes. I Every publication should be required to have what I will call a layperson abstract. It is a recount of all of their work, just like all publications have. They have abstracts, but it is so that people outside of either their field or outside of research 
in general can understand the work. One Maybe. of the reasons this is so important is because how many reporters get it just totally yeah, wrong? Exactly. Most. Because they're trying to read really difficult abstracts that are super dense. So right. if we could, if the actual researcher did it, then we wouldn't have to go through these weird news articles and just realize, no, the reporter That's has wrong. it wrong. That satisfies my need Thank you. 100%. Because you don't want to read the whole thing in the first place. Like, I have I have a proposal to take us ahead. a step further. Oh, do that. I think that reviewer four should be an eighth grade student. Yes. <laughs> I we should love have this. This is like a grade... jury system. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is an eighth grade student, reviewer four. And if that eighth grade student can't come out of that paper knowing what you did and what your results were, you're on the chopping block. I you're love this. Legitimately, no, we're, you're done. This is yeah. a jury system. You, <laughs> Absolutely. you put all the 13 and 14 year olds in a pool. <laughs> And we pull their names at random. They get a little piece of mail in their mailbox, which is very exciting when you're 13. And you are told you're going to review a scientific paper. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we don't have to pay them because we already don't pay reviewers anyway. So. Exactly. And they're un- they're like under like, what is it? Child labor. Yeah. Child, hey, labor child labor laws. laws. You know. yeah. So like, <laughs> we can't pay. Just, it's jury wow. duty for children. Jury duty for eighth graders. But it's like Jurors under get the, paid, but okay. It's <laughs> under the guise of like being good for their education. So it's like through the schools. I keep coming up with more takes. Here's another one, right? <laughs> My last hot take, I think, is that residents and attendings should be evaluated on their evaluations. Ooh. Oh, I like that. And if they suck at it, there should be remediation can i clarify you're saying that the evaluations they're giving to students to students some, some external advice or evaluator should look at the evaluations i don't know if it has to be external I, I was reading a poster the other day about this this idea i'm not the first person to have this hot take but i, I know that they were trialing something in the hospital where the residents would evaluate their attendings evaluations mm. of them i think is i think is what i was looking at and they were using some app you know system to provide the to to manage this sort of back and forth I and mean, among the problems with this is that residents you know feel hesitant to to evaluate their their uh, you know quote unquote superiors because you know they don't want it to blow back on them and blah 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 blah. i still i i think they're neat i i think culturally yeah that's an issue um, the hierarchy is a little issue with that i think you should be the external you think I should be? I would, I would do Go it. Like, you're already those evaluating them. Do them. I, I mean, I, uh, look, medical students, future future residents and attendings, I judge you based on the evaluations I read. If I see ones that are like, she's too quiet. Like, Doesn't smile enough. I definitely got a, you should be like more confident. You're really quiet. Like in my first year. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. Talk more, I guess. I yeah. don't know. Just, like, I, I get it. Why this is a comment. You know, it's hard to evaluate you if you don't talk. Also that evaluation could be better worded. Like you could almost say, I see that you're really working hard and that you know a lot of this information. Like, start it with a compliment. That is the better say, way. I have read that, and, and that is say, the better way. To I do think it. that in the future, gaining a sense of confidence would really do you well down the road. Keep up the good work and keep striving for that. That is the better way to do it. Absolutely. I just hate it every time I see somebody say something like, wow, the greatest medical student I've ever had, and it's three, three out of five stars. I'm like, mm, was it? <laughs> Because you just, you're torching my chances to honor here. I don't know, man. It's as if people have never heard of the compliment sandwich. It's mm, as if they've yeah. never heard. Yeah. They just, they need more Oreos, you know? More Oreos in their life. Well, I think we can save some for a part two. I, I very much enjoyed. We, we could go. Hot We taking. could go a 10 part series on this. Yeah. <laughs> so many takes. Absolutely. That's our show. Riley, thanks for producing the show today. Thank you so much. And I do want to say that this was technically an idea that I pirated from the Ringer podcast, which is called The Hottest Take. I don't know if I can like yeah. plug podcasts, yeah, but if you like hot takes about life, there is a podcast on all podcast platforms, or maybe it's actually just Spotify. And it's called The Hottest Take. It's by The Ringer. And they just do like eight minute podcasts where one person comes with a hot take and then everyone freaks out about it. Awesome. I like it. Jeff, Katie, Levi. 
Thanks for being on the show today with us. It was a good time. Yeah. Thanks for having us. And what kind of unsolicited opinion would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Thank you to this week's editors, Angela Mahoney and Katie Hyam Kessler. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College Medicine Student Government Ongoing Support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Fox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use But the bottom line is that, for what it's worth, I see you, I know you're out there, I wish I could do more. Maybe I can, in ways that I don't understand yet or know about, but I see you, and I'm glad you're here, and other people are too. This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.